You are listening to Behind the Horse's Eyes on the Illiterate Podcast Network. Eyes. I'm your host Ryan, and a little bit different episode this week. Uh, no guests this week, um, but I do get asked a lot about me. I guess I spend so much time highlighting other horsemen, what they're doing, that I always forget about, you know, nobody knows anything about me. And what is my story with the horse? What is my relationship with the horse? And I'll be honest with you, for the people that grew up, you know, from the time they were in diapers, they were in the saddle. Um, I'm the opposite. I come to the horse, honestly, much later in life. Um, no fault of my own. I'll throw that out there. Um, I had wanted a horse since I was a kid. And that's all I ever, ever, I mean, I, I, even to this day, I just think about when I was a kid and how much I wanted a horse. Um, it still hurts. And I have horses now. So if you guys want to set back, Wherever you're at, driving down the road, at work, whatever, wherever you listen to me at. Those of you that do listen to me, that small number of folks, it's like, I like this guy. No what's wrong with any of you. Regardless, if you want to take this little journey with me, let's hop right into it. I was a child of the 80s. And the 80s was kind of a resurgence for Western culture. Um, You had movies like Urban Cowboy that came out that made... Big trucks and drinking beer and honky tonks and all that stuff popular again. Like it had, it had almost all but died out. Except for me, I was kind of the oddity. Um, which I say oddity, but I'm I'm pretty sure a lot of kids probably grew up like I did. Um, there they had boomer parents that that grew up, you know, watching shows like Gunsmoke and The Rifleman and Bonanza. All of those shows, and so the the reruns were on when I was a kid. You know, we were watching the Golden Girls, but we were also going to watch Gunsmoke and Bonanza and all of those. Andy Griffith, you know, not a Western, but it was on repeat constantly. And it was to the point that my dad knew every episode. Like, he knew as soon as it come on what it was. And this was a time before there were things like, you know... Netflix, so you know what the episode is. This was this was regular TV, you know. This this was not. There was no channel guide that you know told you what the episode was. My dad could sit down, flip the TV on, and just see a few seconds of a scene of a Western television show and tell you exactly what that episode was. You know, I I can remember finally uh, one day I was I don't know six seven maybe eight flipping the TV on, and it was an episode of Bonanza. And my dad going, oh, that's the Little Green Men episode. And lo and behold, it was an episode that I'm not sure if it was called Little Green Men or what, but if I'm not mistaken, it was someone posing as um, 
as aliens or something. I, I can't remember the, the the whole outcome of the show, but he was 100% right. But my dad was not into Western culture whatsoever. My dad was a typical blue-collar construction guy. He grew up very poor, um, poor by poor people standards. Uh, other poor people would have probably looked at them and said, wow. But they made it work. My my grandfather has a hellacious story that I won't get into too much detail in, but his father was murdered in the 20s. Um, they ran a, a syrup mill, and his, when his grandfather was murdered, the, the oldest boys and the brother-in-laws from the sisters that were married off kind of helped support the family you know, coming out of Appalachia, and they literally had nothing, and he goes to World War II and comes home, and they rented this little place, and they worked the land where they rented, um, and they weren't really sharecroppers because they still had to pay rent, but they, they worked the land, they always worked the land with a mule, and my dad always had a fondness for mules. And, you know, he now owns a mule. I, I bought him a mule that's just a pasture ornament, basically, so he can look at. And I know that's horrible. Um, I have no use for her, personally. Um, and he's thought of selling her a few times and, and everything, but she's not an old mule. She's, she's a relatively younger mule. She's 14 or so. Um, and he loves her to death. Um, with that said, he probably would like to find her somebody who would make her useful. But at the time, it seemed like a great idea to buy that man a mule. And, he, and for the first couple of years, he'd just go out there and stare at this mule because it reminded him of mules that his dad would plow with. And we're talking in a time that tractors were readily available, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, uh, and on into the 70s. My grandfather plowed the earth with a mule. And he would buy a mule in the spring, and he would plant and plow and do all his work with that mule all the way to fall of the year. And then they would sell that mule so they wouldn't have to feed it through the winter. This is how poor they are. And then he would work, take the money from the mule, and buy a little better mule come spring. And they milked cows. You know, they had cows and... They had hogs, and they had chickens, and they had all of that stuff, and it was all for necessity. You know, they didn't have chickens as a hobby farm. They had chickens because they, they laid eggs, and they ate the eggs, and they had a fryer pen that young roosters would go into, and if they wanted fried chicken, they went and they killed a couple of roosters. You know, uh, if a hen stopped laying, she was no longer useful, and so she would be a, a hen that they would bake, um... I, my dad talks about this, you know, I, I think of it today, and I am no stranger to where my food comes from. Um, being in the industry that I'm in, I, I know exactly where my food comes from, and as a hunter, I know where my food comes from, and we have butchered chickens and stuff here on the farm, but it's not out of necessity. I mean, I can still have the ability to go to the grocery store, but meat is an expensive commodity, and it was just as expensive then. And so that's what they did. And so I grew up with stories of that of that culture, and Dad talking about riding riding the plow mule, you know, with a with a handmade halter and a hay bale string, you know, three kids lined up on a mule's back, going off through the woods type of thing, 
None of them knew remotely what they were doing. No, no horsemanship there, you know, whatsoever. They couldn't afford lessons. My, you know, my my grandfather probably wasn't a horseman that I know of, or a mule skinner for that matter. But he knew how to plow, and he knew how to harness up a mule, and that was probably basically it. So growing up, I had all these stories, you know, and then watching movies like Urban Cowboy and, you know, later on movies like, you know, or the miniseries Lonesome Dove, you know, in the late 80s. I just, and, and all these TV shows, you know, it was, I felt like a kid, you know, that you always hear about the kids in the 1950s playing cowboys and running through the yard with cap guns and all like that. And I was that kid, but in the 1980s. And I remember being very little, and I got a rocky horse. But it was one of those rocky horses that had, like, the bed springs, if you know what I'm talking about. And they squeaked horribly. And there's a picture of me, and I've got this little suede vest on, and these little chaps, and this little dollar store cowboy hat. And I think, or thought, I was the coolest kid on the planet. And I was probably three or four years old. And I can remember that thing. Like, I, I can, it's amazing. I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, but I can remember just one memory of me in this room, just surrounded by wood paneling because it was the 80s. And I am given this rocky horse hell. And I can remember everybody sitting around and laughing. My dad's drinking a beer. My aunts were smoking cigarettes because that was the thing then, you know. Everybody smoked cigarettes in the house. Nobody worried about nothing, you know. But th- that memory is, is fond. In, in my mind, and, and you know, I, I can still smell it. I can still smell that room and hear the squeak of that horse. And in fact, uh, I bought my daughter's uh, one of those horses. My oldest daughter got it. My other, it's, it's still floating around. In fact, they, they called it Rowdy. So for Rowdy Colton, if you're out there listening, uh, they named that thing Rowdy years ago. And then after they started playing with it, I realized that why, after a while, my parents kind of took it away. It is one of the most annoying sounds on the planet. Those bed springs squeaking, holy cow. But I always wanted a horse. Like, it was just, I mean, it, horses were just everything. They, they encompassed my life. And I never had, never had a horse toys. I never thought to ask for briars or anything like that. I had my Rocky horse. But I never thought to ask for maybe a briar or those, you know, they, I don't know if anyone out there remembers, but you should be be able to buy these bags, and they were like the plastic green soldiers, but it was all kind of different horses. And I, I never thought to ask for anything like that. And I remember I was probably 10 years old, and my dad built a barn, built a four-stall barn on our property, and was going to start raising goats. And, which I loved. I, I still love goats to this day. But it, we fenced in all this area. And I remember asking him again for a horse. And he looked me dead in the eye. And he goes, none of us know anything about taking care of a horse. He goes, you don't need a horse. We can't afford a horse. No horse. And so that was kind of the end of it. Like I never, never thought about it. There's a few years where I thought about it, in fact, after that. Even bringing it back up, I still coveted horses. I, I wanted one so bad. I didn't even know, I didn't even have a particular type. Like, I, that's how little I knew. 
and this was before the internet where you could just go research. You know, I'm, the internet was out there, but, you know, the government had the internet or some big corporation might have had the internet, but the average person did not have the internet. And so there was no, there was no research. And I never got books or anything about horses. I, you know, I was, it, I would go from one extreme to the other. In the back of my mind, it was the horse. But this week, it might be dinosaurs. And then next week, it might be airplanes. But in the back of my mind, it was still, you know, I kind of still want a horse. So by the time I was around 10 or 11 years old, my dad goes to work as a superintendent um, for a small company. And it was probably one of the best gigs he had ever had up until that point. And it was a great company. He worked for a very nice guy that ended up becoming his best friend. And this guy had two sons that were younger than me, uh, but they had horses. And we would always go over and fish in their pond, and I'd see the kids come riding up on their horses. And it was just burning me. It just hurt so bad. And I love to fish to this day, and I love to fish then, but I just see these kids just giving these horses hell. And I'm like, I want to do that. I want to do that so bad. And, you know, when you're that age, you have no fear. Like, you're not thinking about falling off of a horse or if a horse can buck or rear or bolt or anything like that. You're not You're not thinking about any of that. You're not even thinking about that the first time you get on a horse as a kid. You know, the height is intimidating. Other than that, that was it. And I remember one day, one of the kids come riding up. And he looked at me and he goes, you want to ride? And I looked at dad, and I knew in the back of my mind my dad was going to say no. Because my dad was that type of dad. He's like, you're not going to get hurt. Not on my watch. No. But I remember looking at him, and then he looked at the horse and looked at the kid. And he looked at me, and he said, well, go on if you're going to go. Oh, man, I, I look like the Tasmanian devil twirling, running up. And so we walk up to the barn, and the horses are all up there. The kid ties his horse. His little brother is there. His little brother's on this cute little pinto. Uh, don't know what it was. I can't. don't have a picture to look back to even guess at what it was. I don't have a really good memory of, you know, how that horse looked. I knew it was a little squatty pinto, probably pony size. Uh, the other kid was on a big bay. Um, and they said, you're going to ride blue. Blue's good for somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. And I'm like... That's good, because I don't know what I'm doing. So they go get Blue, and Blue is this giant, giant of a hoss. Or at least it seemed like then. If I were to see that horse today, even though that horse is well passed on, if I were to see that horse today, it would probably be average at best. But it seemed so big, so big when I was a kid. And I remember them bringing that horse around, and Blue was a big blue Tennessee walker. And they go, you can ride this one. He takes care of people. And I go, okay. And then I saw them with their western saddles, you know. And I was like, awesome. So I was like, which saddle I get riding? They go, oh, you get to ride in this one. That one's for blue. And they called it an English saddle. But it was, in fact, not an English saddle. What it was was like a plantation-style saddle. If I'm not mistaken, I believe it was a Buena Vista, if I can remember the plate on the back of it. For those that don't know, uh, especially with a lot of gated horses, um, the plantation-style saddles are very popular. Uh, they give a lot of free movement, um, the way they're rigged. 
Um, they, they do resemble an English saddle to an extent. Some have kind of a little bit of a cannel on them, and um, they're swole just a little bit. Um, not quite as tight built to the horse as an English saddle. But they are super comfy. And my heart sank because I wanted to ride in a big western saddle like, you know, John Wayne or somebody. So, I get on this horse and we're just walking along. And I'm having the time of my life. I have no idea what I'm doing. The horse is just following them, by the way. Like, I'm not touching the horse. But I think I am straight up John Wayne at this point. And I'm doing everything. I'm a cowboy. You can't tell me no different. And we're riding all over this property, and we go down, we cross a pond, and the, the horses are, you know, up to their bellies in water, you know, my feet are getting wet, and I'm just, oh my gosh, it was the best experience of my life. And I loved that horse. And we would go to this farm about every, I don't know, three or four weeks and fish, and for an entire summer, I rode horses all summer. I didn't learn a damn thing, by the way. You know, as a 10 or 11-year-old, I didn't learn nothing, squat, about horsemanship at all. I just got on that horse and let it follow the other horses. And until one day they took off running, I ran with them because my horse is just following. And we all got in trouble and had to put the horses up. And then everybody got mad at me because I was the one that got caught. But that's a story for a different time right there. But that was also the first time I ever fell off a horse. And it didn't scare me, per se. The kid kind of took it the wrong way, wanted to blame me, I guess because I didn't back up their story when they were like, I heard y'all running back there, and they all looked at me and was like, well, it was him, and I'm like, my horse was just following, and uh, I think their grandfather got pretty pretty ticked off with them and told them to put the horses up, and one of them picked up a piece of wood on the ground like a piece of plank and just smacked the horse I was on right on the butt reared, slung me into a gate, and I'm like, dude, what is your problem? You know? And uh, I didn't ride with them anymore after that. I was like, you know, no. No, 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 no. No, no more. We're, we're, we're done here. And my focus had kind of had kind of shifted a little bit, you know. I was really into a movie that a lot of dudes got into in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, that was a movie called Top Gun. But I always, always associated really good with a real minor character in that movie uh, by the name of Wolfman. It played by an actor by the name of Barry Tubb, and he wore a cowboy hat. And I was like, that's the coolest guy ever. Not only is he a naval aviator, he's a cowboy. <laughs> I mean, it was the dumbest thing ever, but as a kid, you know, you're drawn to stuff like that, you know? You know, you it's just crazy at the stuff that you remember as a kid. Like, I can remember one of my favorite songs as a kid was Foster and Lloyd's Texas in 1880. And it was a new song then. And my mom had this huge Oldsmobile uh, station wagon, wood grain down the side. I mean, looking like the Griswolds, you know, on their way to Wally World. And I would stand in the back seat, you know, just screaming that song to the top of my lungs. It was also the 1980s, and uh, we we we. It was perfectly normal for your parents to smoke in the car while you didn't wear a seatbelt and just stand and dance in the back seat. My parents didn't smoke, but I had relatives that did. And every time they get in the car, it just you know 
just light it up. Wouldn't even ask, just light it up. You know, you're hacking and gagging in the back seat, and they'd laugh, say, what's wrong with you as your lungs are burning? And it builds character, I guess. But as the mid-90s kind of started rolling around, you know, I'm I'm almost a teenager, if if not a teenager by the point. Um, actually, no, I was not a teenager, now thinking about it, when Tombstone came out. And like everyone's dad, they were obsessed with that movie. I mean, you know, just like today, people walked around. If you think it's bad, see a bunch of drunk middle-aged guys talking about I'm your Huckleberry, well, hmm. You should have been around in 1994, 1995, people. It was obnoxious. But it sparked something else in me. And I wanted to reconnect my love of of the horse. And around this time, my parents had made a decision that the, the little hobby farm that they had, they wanted to sell. My, my grandmother had moved to Alabama. We were living in Augusta, Georgia. And... Um, my grandmother had moved to Jacksonville, Alabama, and I don't know how dad taught mom, or excuse me, mom taught dad into wanting to, to move to Alabama. I mean, he had no family there. He had no one there. And, you know, I'm an only child. I have no support system there. I, I live next door to my grandmother, so my cousins were over there all the time, so it was like I had brothers and sisters, and, you know, me and my dad are pretty much packing up and leaving everyone to go to basically a foreign country. If you've ever been to Northeast Alabama, that is a completely different country. So this was the first real acreage that we had. Like, we had a small farm. We had acreage now. We had a big place. Huge barn with a loft. Nice house. Yeah, the front yard, just the front yard that we cut grass on was over an acre. I mean, and then it was pastures galore, barn lots, this, that, and the other. And my mom's uncle was in the cattle business, except he was in the seed cattle business. And by seed cattle business, I'm not saying he's actually breeding seed cattle. No, 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 no. He'd just go to the cell, buy something that was emaciated, bring it home, feed it for a few weeks, and then turn around and sell it to somebody else who needs a, a seed bull or a seed cow. And that was his association with the seed cow business. And my dad, outside of mules, my dad had always had a love for cows. And so he decided that in the mid-90s, he was going to establish an Angus herd. And so he bred Angus and Beefmaster. And we did that for quite a while. And I always said, Dad, why don't we get a horse? Because we did all of our working with cows on ATVs and, and trucks and cars. We, we, we didn't have a horse. Dad goes, I'm not buying a horse. A horse is a hay burner. It costs too much right here as it is. You're not getting a horse. I mean, it was like a, it was like the same conversation I had with him in like 19, you know, 88 or something. I'm having the same conversation, and here I am, at, you know, a teenager, and he's still telling me no. And then one day we were up at the barn, and we're, I'm cleaning stalls because that was, as a teenager, you know, that's your chore, and that was my job. And that would give me a little bit of spending money if I did everything I was supposed to do. And one of those was make sure everything had water and all the barn stalls were cleaned out. The whole of the barn was cleaned out because it was open for the cows to come in most of the time. And which I know a lot of people are like, ew, you let your cows in the barn hall, but that was their shelter. All right. But uh, regardless, if I made sure I did everything I was supposed to do, that would give me a little spending money. 
So I'm plugging away up at the barn. Dad's up in the loft doing something. And I remember Dad yelling, what the hell is that? And all of a sudden, coming up our driveway was the roughest, raggediest, most sway-backed, rankest-looking little horse just walking up our driveway. No no one around. Just this horse. And this thing had to have been in its 30s. It was toothless. It was so sway back his belly was about to touch the ground. One ear looked like it was chewed off, and it had to have been blind as a bat. And it was also the most beautiful thing I had ever seen, ever, at that point. Because I was like, here's my opportunity. Here is my horse. I am being blessed with a horse. So we go down the driveway, and we catch this thing, and it's wearing this ratty old halter. And Dad goes, what do we do? And I said, I don't know. I said, I don't even know where it come from. Dad goes, I don't either. He goes, I don't know anybody who's got a horse around here. He said, except for, you know, there's a couple people a mile or two up the road. They had a couple of donkeys. And we always thought maybe they had a horse. So we take it up. We walk it up to the barn. We put it in a stall. I look at Dad and I said, if nobody comes and gets it, can I keep it? Dad looks at the thing. And Dad's doing that thing where he's just kind of stroking his chin and he's squinting and kind of looking at it. And he look at me and just kind of look at it. Like, you could just tell he wanted to say, not no, but hell no. And he said the unimaginable. He goes, if nobody comes and gets it, we can't let it starve to death. So, yeah, I guess we'll keep it. So here I am, Ryan Chastain, horse owner. Finally, I own a horse for exactly... 45 minutes. Because almost exactly 45 minutes after this thing comes up and I put it in the barn and I've already given it a name and I went in and got some all stock that was for the cows and gave it to it because I mean all stock's better than nothing. This thing looked hungry and gave it some hay and got some water and you know it's sniffing food and it's dropping 90% of it but you know I'm thinking it's eating because I don't know any better. You know, I don't. I, I didn't know toothless horses needed soup at that point in time in my life. And exactly 45 minutes after all of that, here comes a raggedy old rusted-out pickup truck up into the front yard. They slam the door. They wave at us up at the barn. We go walking down there, and it's an old man with a cane with a younger guy. And the younger guy goes, you haven't seen an old gray horse, have you? And my heart sank. Because I knew Ryan Chastain, horse owner, cowboy extraordinaire, uh, was going to be horseless again. So, Dad leads him up to the barn. I open it out. I give him a pet and a big old kiss. And they take a lead rope. And the funniest thing I would ever saw, though, looking back on it, was they lowered the tailgate on the pickup truck. One side on the, the younger guy sat on the tailgate. The old man drove. And uh, they led the horse home that way, doing like two mile an hour, you know, back to the guy's house. And fortunately, he didn't live but maybe a half a mile or so from us. Um, it wasn't the farm that we thought it was. It was somebody else. It, they had a, you know, a, a barbed wire off area in the middle of the woods that they, they kept this poor horse in. And come to find out, the, the old horse used to be in really good shape. 
Um, and looking back on it, they probably did took really good care of him because when the guy told me that the horse was, you know, 33, I didn't know what that meant then, but I know what that means now. And for 33, that old horse was probably not in bad shape. Feet looked good. You know, somebody was taking care of him. I didn't know any of that then. I, you know, I didn't even think about farriers or nothing like that, you know. I knew horses had shoes. You know, now here I am at 39 going, half of mine don't have. They get barefoot trims, you know. But then I thought old horses had to have shoes, you know. This horse didn't have shoes. I wonder why I don't have shoes, you know. You're thinking about things like that. So after I'm no longer Ryan Chastain horse owner, cowboy extraordinaire, trick rider, whatever the hell I thought I was going to be, um, Dead did the best thing he could do. I mean, it, it, it devastated me. Like, 45 minutes of my life was probably the most worst experience of my life, other than outside of losing a loved one, obviously. But it was like the worst experience I'd ever went through up until that point. And so Dad goes out and buys me a brand new ATV. Buys me a brand new four-wheeler. And I guess it was, you know, him making up for you know, me no longer being Ryan Chastain horse owner. Which was nuts, but still, he, for what he paid for that, he could have bought me a horse. You know. It was probably cheaper to maintain. In fact, I know it is. Being a horse owner now, it's a lot cheaper to maintain that ATV. And probably a lot safer for me because I was kind of a dumb youth. Um, so it was safer for me to have an ATV and a lot cheaper for him to maintain. So around that time, my, my grandmother passes away, my mom's mother. The reason that we had actually moved there in the first place. And so a lot of decisions are made. We, we stayed for a little while. And my dad had actually taken a job uh, or was offered a job back here back in the area that I currently live in. And uh, they they decided that they were just going to come back. And so we, we moved to a little town called Johnston, South Carolina. It's in Edgefield County. They bought this huge salt box plantation-style house. Uh, it was a real fixer-upper. I mean, when I say a real fixer-upper, it was amazing. It was not condemned. I think when they bought it, it was considered a detriment to the land. And so the house was not... Uh, included into the loan, uh, just just the acreage was. And here I am back on my st stuff again. Hey, you know, we got all this land. It's already, you know, kind of pastured and all. Can I get a horse? Can you take care of a horse? Well, I mean, you're going to help me, right? I don't know anything about a horse. Do you know anything about a horse? Not really, but, I mean, we can figure it out, right? You know? That kind of thing. No, we're not getting a horse. And it would stink because Dad reunited with his old friend that he used to work with and everything. And we'd go to the horse sale, the local horse sale on Saturday nights. And I uh, sit there and watch all the horses. You know, they were they were buying and selling horses. And they dabbled in a little buck in stock and stuff, too. Uh, in fact, I think the, they still have a, uh, a rodeo company. Uh, where they supply some some bucking stock, uh, I, I'm pretty sure they do. But we'd go to a horse sale and we would look at horses, and I mean it was like, Dad thought it was fun, you know, and he thought it was fun for me, and it was fun. But I mean it was also kind of the cruelest joke you could ever play for a kid that didn't do anything but want a horse. And I remember one night this plug comes through, and I remember this plug vividly. But it was so gorgeous, and nobody was nobody was bidding on. It. I think it I think it bid up to like. 200 bucks or something. I looked at dad and I was like, you, you can afford 200 bucks, right? And I guess I'm not buying that. You know, what, what are we going to do with a horse? And I remember being just so mad. Just so mad. You know, and you're a kid. You're not, you're not thinking rationally. 
here about anything. And I remember being so pissed off. Like, I, I, didn't, I don't think I spoke to him, like, the rest of the night, you know. I was quiet all in the car, all right, on the way home. It, it was bad. Like, I, I threw the teenage equivalent of a tantrum. So, high school rolls around, and I'll be honest with you, at that point, horses were, like, the last thing on my mind because I discovered the opposite sex. And I went completely stupid. And uh, I had uh, a pretty popular girl as a girlfriend and I was kind of popular myself um in in the group that I ran with and uh, she lived in a pretty highbrow uh subdivision which also had a barn um where people that lived there could keep a horse and we would go and and walk from her house up to the barn we'd look at the horses and they had hounds and uh it was like the coolest thing ever uh, but in my mind, I was not thinking about horses at that point in time. Um, I won't say what I was thinking about, but I think y'all can do the math there. But it was, it was not, it was not the equine species, trust me. So like all high school romances that end horribly, um, I, I kind of just, you know, I didn't, I didn't date anyone for a while, you know. Wasn't thinking about horses, wasn't thinking about anything. Um, I was working for my dad, you know, and I figured, well, that's, you know, I'm never going to have a horse. I'm just going to, you know, not going to have a farm. I'm just going to be here. They're going to die. I'll take over this place, and then I'll get me a horse, you know. One of those type things. Um, You know, my music taste changed, you know, from country music to, like, you know, screamo and emo and a lot of old punk and you, you name it uh dressed drastically different and man that that was that's still a big part of me like I still love that music I love that scene you know I was on the ground floor you know of that you know 2000-2001 ground floor of you know Taking Back Sunday and Jimmy Eat World and uh, Thursday you know that long before my Chemical Romance and all of those bands were thought about and all these people that called there says, oh yeah, I'm, I'm an elder emo, you know, and they, they started listening in like 2008 or something. Uh, half of you were going, what is he even talking about? Regardless, I went through a dark, dark time in my life and horses were again on the back burner. Until I was at a show one night and I meet this girl and... I don't know, it kind of kind of seemed like it was going good. You know, she was she was attractive, real scene queen type gal. And we were talking about stuff, you know. And we we were all country kids, you know. Even in our little scene, we were all country kids. And she mentioned that her sister rode horses and that they had a farm that she cared nothing about. She hated it. And I was like, "Oh." I was like, "Well, I I kind of, you know, kind of low-key like horses, you know. I mean, could could I come over sometime? And so I would, I would go over from time to time, and her sister her sister was older, um, older than me, super attractive. I mean, quintessential barrel racer, little dog, the whole thing. And I was in lust. I was in straight lust. Like, this, this girl the whole time... That I was going over to see, but using that as an excuse just to be around the horses and her sister um, was really into me. I was not into her, even though she was 
you know, she was attractive. She was sweet. And looking back on it, that was kind of skeezy of me. Uh, but something ignited in me, and it was horses and the opposite sex. And I figured out, you know, you can put those two things together, and magic can happen, people. And then I realized what rejection was like really quick, too. And, uh, yeah, that that kind of stung. But, you know, outside of that, um, it was a pretty neat experience, I guess. Um, that was the first time I really got introduced to Western sport, you know, via barrel racing. And um, at that time, I just thought barrel racing was just girls. I, you know, I had no idea that men... Uh, men barrel raced. You know, you you see, you know, IP, you know, IPRA stuff and WPRA stuff, and it's it's all women. And I know I did that something like the NBHA uh, existed at all. Only thing you know I'd never been exposed to was was rodeo. But I fell in love with the concept, and I was you know I I became one of those people. I was like, I wonder why dudes can't do this. And still not doing any research whatsoever, just my little mind, the little hamster in there just going in circles trying to figure out what it's trying to do. Never looked into it to see why men didn't do it or if men did do it. So like old guys, by this point, I just, I go to work. I meet a lady, we get married, all of that stuff, and no kids, nothing like that at this point in time. And I... Didn't you know? It never dawned on me those years, those early years, uh, when I got married, that you know I'm making money. There's two incomes here. We rented this little cottage or whatever, and that you know my parents still had this big place. I can afford to have a horse now. That never dawned on me. I was still in love with horses, but I never put that together. It was like it wasn't a priority. That you know, when you when you first get married and you're trying to have a kid and all of that stuff, stuff like that is it, you don't even think about that kind of stuff. And then before I could even put that together, my parents decided that you know I had moved out, so they were going to sell that big place, the big house, didn't need it. My, my mother's health wasn't doing that great, and so they decided that they were just going to buy a little ranch style house and a subdivision and call that home. And it just happened to be so convenient that it was just literally around the corner from where I lived at the time um, in a cottage and I'm like oh, isn't this convenient you know oh, they're, they're they're moving but they're just moving down the street from me <laughs> and thinking back on it, I know exactly why they did that you know I mean I'm sure I was an only child I was their baby you know it was kind of like when I joined the Navy it was just you know my, my dad was just so against it you know, and my dad, when I was younger and I would talk about that, my dad would be like, you know, uh, it's, you know, that'd be good. It'll be great. You're going to learn so much. This and the other until it was the time, the day, or actually it was the night before I was going to ship off the boot camp. And that was the saddest I had ever seen my dad, you know. And it was right before 9 11. And so when, when I, uh, when I finally, finally come back home and my career was cut short you know a year and some change or so later right at two years my uh I remember my dad you know thought it was the, the, the greatest thing ever I was home I wouldn't have to go through everything even if the navy was not my part of the navy was not heavily involved in the the war effort at that point in time but 
that's really neat. that's another story for another day, and it's completely unhorse related. Um, so, but past all that, you know, I'd, <clears throat> after that, you know, I get married. My parents decide they're going to move. They're going to move closer to where we're at. We're just renting, and um, my mother's uh, great grandmother passes away and and leaves her a fairly large piece of property and but it was divided it was divided a bunch of amongst a bunch of people and none of them wanted anything to do with it because they were some of them just got a half acre some of them got a acre some of them you know got a quarter of an acre some of them had no access to it whatsoever and so mom's like well i'll just buy them out won't you take them most of it you know sub a thousand dollars you know and mom still had money left over from where they had sold their house um before she just bought them, bought them all out. Um, they were, you know, willing participants in all of this. It wasn't like she cut their throat and, you know, and uh, extorted it from them. No, she offered them, hey, if you know, if you're not gonna do anything this, you want to sell it, let me buy it. I want to put it together as a big piece of property, and that's what she did. And that's where I'm at now. They bought this big piece of property. And we decided that we were gonna come here. And we were gonna we we're gonna have a farm, and we were gonna get back into everything, the full swing of everything, and. My dad got back into the goat business, and the goat business was good for a while. And then I uh, I had met someone um, who is still a very dear friend of mine. And they had told me, you know, I, I had made mention that I was thinking about I wanted to take some riding lessons. And I'm, I'm in my 20s at this point, and uh, I, I really want to reconnect with the horse. I want to take some riding lessons. And they told me that they were in this barn, and that, you know, it had a good lesson program, and they did shows, and this, that, and the other. Once you come out to one of the fun shows, you know, and uh, watch me ride, and you can meet the lady that runs the place. And so I did. I, I come out, and I met the lady that ran the place, and watched, you know, what would soon become, you know, like a sibling to me, you know, run their pattern. Uh, their barrel pattern and poles and arena race and all like that. And I was just mesmerized by the whole thing. And I met the owner, and I was like, I'm interested in taking lessons. And she laid it all out for me, and she's like, listen, whenever you're ready, give me a call. Give me your card. And um, I probably sat on that card forever. Never ended up calling back, never ended up doing it. Just didn't have time, you know. And, as you know, you were trying to get established as adults. And I just did not, I just did not have the time. Or couldn't make the time. Or I, I gave myself the excuse that I could not make the time to go take riding lessons. And then I had a cousin who bought a horse. And they lived right down the street from me. And I remember Dad telling me about the horse. I need to go check this little horse out. This, that, and, the other. and I remember going over and looking at the horse one day. And I was like, okay, cool. It's, it was a little red horse. And again, me the type of person I am just mesmerized by this little thing. And I could tell kind of that it was an older horse, even though I wasn't an expert in those things. I'm still not an expert in those things. I mean, come on. But I, I can I kind of age one within a few years these days, kind of, sort of. At least I, at least I hope so. If I can't, I'm in the wrong business. Regardless, I go over there and I look at this little horse, and I'm like, man, I'd, I'd love to have that horse. And I remember at one point in time, uh, her stepdad was talking about she needed to get rid of the horse because there wasn't enough room there for the horse. And so, 
dad goes, you know, if you're wanting a horse, it's a good opportunity for you to get a horse. And I jumped on that. Oh, I jumped on that like flies on cow patties. I ran over there that day and was like, I hear you're going to sell your horse. And she goes, yeah. The little horse's name was Tico. She was in her 20s. She was an old gal. And she was a Morgan. I didn't know what a Morgan was. I fully am aware of what a Morgan is now, and it is my breed. And and it's funny that that horse sparked me appreciating a breed, and Blue, the horse, the first horse I ever really rode, the Tennessee Walker, never really sparked me into wanting to follow Tennessee Walkers. I, to this day, I still... And, and, and it's nothing against the Walker horses or the people that have Walker horses. They, they just never never interested me in in all fairness it was just never you know it never lit a flame that tennessee walkers are going to be my my passion and i had the bright idea i hadn't been on a horse in years but it's me you know ryan chastain horse owner again um that once they got my 400 dollars, which is what i paid for this 20 something year old morgan and uh a saddle that fit the horse that she had, a little western Simcoe saddle. And to this day, whenever I find old school Simcoe saddles, I buy them because they're just, they're built pretty well, you know, and you can usually get them really, really cheap and you can beat the things down, you know, just beat them around forever. But I, so I, I gave her 400 bucks and I'm like, okay, how am I going to get this thing home? And my dad's like, well, you know, I, We'll have to see if we can't borrow a trailer or something like that. We lived as the crow flies three miles. Now, if you took the road, it was probably four or five miles. A couple of turns in there. So I had the bright idea that me, Ryan Chastain, now newly again horse owner, was going to ride this horse home. I, I said, I can do this. I told Dad, I said, I, I pulled up on, like, you know, then it was Google Earth or something like that. It wasn't even Google Earth then. It was probably, I probably just, like, pulled up a MapQuest or something like that. Or uh, what was the, uh, what was that? I cannot remember the name. It used to be a website you could go to, and it was just the Earth, like, satellite images. And I remember, I think it was just what I went to, and I printed it out, and I, and I looked at where all the power lines went through the woods and where the creek beds were and all like that. And I took a highlighter and I marked my path and I said, this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to ride this horse back home. My dad did not, he didn't even question it. And he's like, okay. So he drops me off over there. He gets to trot and just leaves. <laughs> he just goes home. And I get maybe an eighth of a mile up the street. This horse just turns. It wants to go back home. You know, and I'm trying to figure out how, how do I make this horse go where I want it to go? Why aren't you going where I want you to go? You know, me stupid not knowing any better. You know, I know nothing about this horse. I know nothing about riding horses other than that the horse I used to ride would just go wherever I wanted it to go, which honestly it didn't just follow the horses that was in front of it. So I'm trying to get this horse to go. Finally, I just dismount and I lead the horse. So now we're walking through the woods, but we got to cut across this neighborhood and we cut across this neighborhood. There's all these little neighborhood kids out there playing. And they see me come walking up with Tico, the little Morgan. And they stop. And they start walking toward me. Now, I would be leery of that, you know, with, with like my red mare or something. If like a group of kids just started swarming her at any given time, well, she probably wouldn't do anything. 
but it kind of makes you be a little bit more, your senses get a little bit more heightened. You're like easy, you know, they're just kids. I didn't really think about that then. So I just let these kids just swamp her, you know. Luckily, she was a good girl. She didn't care. She was just bomb-proof. But, and they're like, oh my gosh. I was like, you know, I'm like a proud papa. I'm like, yes, yeah, my horse. Yep, her name's Tico. Yep, you know, and I am just spouting crap. <laughs> like I've been a horse owner for 100 years, you know. Uh, had a little swagger in my step when I walked away. But off we went after the kids all got to pet her. And we're we're going through the woods, and we come out of the woods, and I get, I get to the house, and when I get to the house, I had made a, we had a nice nice little barn, not a very big barn, but a nice little, little barn with a lean-to on one side, and I said I was going to turn the lean-to into you know, uh, one giant big stall, and then I was going to give her an acre or so, you know for the time being until I could do better because I didn't want to lose the horse and I knew something bad would happen to the horse because the horse was and I hate to say it was in a semi bad situation and even my cousin will tell you because of the person that she was seeing at that point in time that horse was in jeopardy because of that person I won't say it was my cousin uh or my cousin's stepdad or anything like that it had more to do with the person I think she was seeing at the time but I needed to do something, so I did it. You know, I bought the horse, I brought it home, stalled it, gave it an acre, and said, I'll give it more, you know, this week. Get the horse home. First thing I do, I call the vet. Vet comes out, vet's like, whoa, that's an old horse. And I'm like, yep. And she goes, my guess is, you know, mid to late 20s. And I'm like, holy crap. So me and Tico are were thick as thieves. The, the vet said that light work was fine but don't expect to take her on any long trail rides or anything like that but if i wanted to saddle her up ride her through the yard you know for 30 minutes or something like that just keep an eye on her make sure nothing's swole or she seems sore or anything like that you know the whole drill they give you and uh i i had to go about a year and then we stopped riding her completely and i absolutely fell in love with morgan horses fell in love with tico still in love with tico to this day and I was I was trying to make a decision on what I wanted to do with, with Tico. And Tico was getting on up in age. I, I didn't really want to sell Tico. But I needed another horse. I didn't have room for another horse. I needed a rideable horse. But even then, I knew that I had I'd taken on the responsibility of this older horse. And it was my responsibility to make sure she was took care of until her last day. And I was approached by someone, a, a younger guy, that was a horse trainer. And he goes, I am looking for something for my little brother. And I need something older, just deadheaded, that would just teach him this basic horse care. He goes, I've tried to take him to work and everything else. He goes, I, I need something at home. And I ended up letting them take Tico for that, for that purpose. And you're going to think I'm full of crap, but Tico lived another six years. Another six years with them, and was fat and pretty, and a big pasture until the day she died. When the day she died, I got a phone call, letting me know that hey, um, you know we 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 had to put her down. But another six years. I mean, she was in her mid to late twenties when I you know when I got her, and then another six years on top of that. I mean, that, that's amazing to me, and, and died a happy horse, a horse that was took care of. So. You know, I had somebody told me, well, you know, I, I think I was telling someone about they had an older horse, and they were like, 
you know, I'm so sick of taking care of it. And I was like, well, you've got a responsibility to take care of it. And then they wanted to throw it in my face that, well, you dumped an old horse. And I was very quick to say, no, I didn't dump an old horse. I had somebody who wanted her, specifically her. And I let them take her. I didn't dump her anywhere. And, and and that is one of the things that bother me. People that do have older horses and they just dump them because they're older horses. Not everybody I understand is as fortunate as I was to have somebody who's willing, that really wanted that horse for that purpose. But if you can find somebody who's really wanting that that a horse for that purpose, and you have that opportunity, and they can go actually be useful. If it's nothing else, just to teach someone how to act on the ground around of a horse and how to take care of a horse that may be a little on the special needs side, jump on that opportunity if you know it's going to be a good situation for that horse because you're giving that horse probably a better situation than what you can give it. And so I had made my mind up at this point that I was going to get very serious about my horsemanship because I knew it was lacking. It, it was severely lacking. And... uh you know, I'd had Tico a couple of years, and I had a friend of mine, she called me, and she goes, listen, um, I have a American Saddlebred, he's a five-gated horse that we are going to, or had the intention of showing, and times are kind of tough right now, and I can't afford to keep him at the barn that he's at, and I really can't afford to keep him, I have, you know, six other horses or something like that, that they had at the time that being taken care of but it was just they didn't need another mouth to feed and she goes listen you can have him and i said okay yeah i'll take him i, I knew nothing about saddlebreds or saddle seat i, I mean i knew they're gated um i knew they had a you know a long history and so here comes ben to my house and registered name is my honey's money and uh, I called him, they called him Bobby, but at the time we had a, one of mom's cousins were living on the back of the property, and his name was Bobby, and I didn't want to be screaming Bobby and think I'm talking to him, so I changed his name to Ben. Benjamin, like $100 bills, you know, my honey's money, yeah, I know, it's horrible, but that's, that's how that horse got its name. And Ben was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen up to that point. Like, when he come off the trailer out of that show barn... And he was shiny, and his tail was wrapped, and I mean, he, you know, he, he had his bridle path clipped, and he come out snorting, standing tall. I was like, "Holy crap! Look at this thing! I own this! Holy crap! I don't know how to ride this." And so then I really got serious about lessons. So I ducked in my wallet, found the number, and I ended up calling a lady by the name of Valerie, and she owned a barn here in right outside of Aiken, South Carolina. And I go there, and I go, listen, I got a horse that I know nothing about, and, yeah, I kind of I kind of need some lessons. And she goes, well, it sounds like you got over your head. And I said, yeah. So we, we arranged for a time for me to come take my first lesson. And, <clears throat> and we start out like, I guess most people do when they start a lesson program, except I didn't, I got the rushed course. Like, I didn't get all the, all the ground stuff and all like that until later. Um, because I'd kind of been through that. I was kind of self-taught there because I had had two horses at this point. Just didn't know what I was doing with them, but I had two horses at this point. And so she goes, you know, you have a horse. She goes, I just want to see you ride. And I said, okay. So we get, she gives me this horse, this big plucky, big plucky quarter horse. 
and uh, her name was Barbie. No, it was not Barbie. What was that horse's name? I cannot remember. It was not Barbie, though. Barbie was another horse there, regardless. And I'm walking this horse around her arena. And she looks at me, and she goes, can you trot? And I said, yeah. And I trot, and I'm bouncing all over the place. You know, and she goes, okay, we'll work on that. She goes, but you got a good seat. She goes, you're not all over the place with your hands. She goes, you know, I, I, what do you want me to work with you on? And I'm like, I want to be able to, to gallop. I want to be able to run. You know, I want to do all the stuff that I see all these other people do on horses. I don't, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. And she goes, well, we can do that. She goes, and I want you to bring your new horse here for a couple of months. And I want to introduce you to your horse and I want you to take lessons on your horse. But first, I'm going to have my trainer take your horse and see what level your horse is at. And I'm like, okay. And by this time, my dad um, had decided that he was going to ride Ben. Well, that ended pretty bad. Dad come off of Ben, breaks his collarbone, ribs, everything else. It's all messed up. So then I'm scared to death of Ben. I'm like, I'm not riding that. So what he did to my dad, shoot, you know. My dad didn't know what he was doing either. So I take Ben over there. I start lessons. Trainer comes out, takes Ben, runs Ben through an obstacle course. You know, it's got tarps and seesaws and all that stuff. Ben just goes right through it without a problem. Just goes right on through it without a problem. And the trainer looks at me and Val looks at me and they're like, what's wrong with this horse? And I'm like, oh, he tried to murder dad, you know. After that, me and Ben became buddies, and I took lessons on Ben, and trail rode Ben, uh, never showed Ben, and I ended up giving Ben to a really good friend of mine at the time that uh, was just looking for another horse, and now Ben, Ben's still kicking, Ben's still around, uh, last I heard, um, he's an older guy now, you know, he's he's probably, he might be retired now. Um, but I know he's still with us, and uh, he found a new job as a sorter of all things, sorting cows, like American Saddlebred sorts cows, go figure. So I take lessons, I move on from Ben, and I fell in love with a fox trotter there at the barn that I used for fun shows at that barn, you know. Everybody did fun shows at that barn, that was a thing to do. If you took lessons there, you, you did the fun shows, you know. And uh, I still have a wall of ribbons from those shows, you know, showing on that Fox Trotter. And I think I showed Ben a couple of times there, but not actually showed him. I think I did him at a fun show once or twice. I, in fact, I know I did. I have, a, uh, I have a ribbon. I have a picture of me with Ben and a ribbon. And it was, I had a, a broke arm at the time. And I rode him in a fun show. Yeah, that's, that was as, at that point in time, that was as cowboy as it got. But part of her training method. And part of the fun show was always barrels. And I was always fascinated by barrels. Barrel racing was just one of those things. I was like, eh, you know. And I fell in with the trainer that was there at that barn and ended up that trainer ended up becoming my show buddy and one of my best friends and the person I lean on the most. In fact, we lean on each other a lot these days when it comes to horses. But me and Brandy Lemke became thick as thieves. That was the trainer. And I ended up getting a couple of horses from Brandy's. Just amazing daggum horses from Brandy. 
And we built a relationship around the MBHA. She told me all about the MBHA and how she showed and this, that, and the other. Men do it. That was when I knew I'd kind of found my end to the sport that had captivated me for so long was... You know, here's somebody who can teach me the ropes and get me in. And, yeah, I'd done it at fun shows, but it wasn't very fast. I didn't really have a horse for it. But now she's offering, hey, I've got some horses that are for sale or we could do a lease on and get you going. And that's exactly what I did. That was that was how I got into the sport was really I have all her to think. And, and everything that I've gotten from that was was through her. And, and she's been nothing but just the the... the the sturdiest of of pillar to lean on in my career and that's what we did we'd load up on weekends and we'd go show and we'd come home or you know and talk about the next show and you know i met so many wonderful people at that time and it, it really sparked a lot in me i started really caring more about horsemanship i started learning more about horsemanship more of the training side and then i had someone approach me about Wanted, they had a daughter that wanted to take lessons. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess I could do lessons. I mean, you know, I'd, sure. And and so I'd build a lesson program. And I, I did that for, gosh, you know, years. And I had several students, you know, through those years. And one of them ended up, you know, becoming one of the, the best young horse people I know. Or I am biased, you know. I'm very biased when it comes to her. Um, and I won't say her by name because I don't know if she, she wants me to say her name or not. But she ended up jockeying a horse for me. And that, we ended up pairing her up with, with a horse, her with a particular horse. And just, she'd go kill it. I can't remember, I cannot remember a time when that kid didn't bring home paychecks. I mean, I, you know, I I was the proudest person on the planet. I had pretty much adopted her as another kid at this point. I didn't, and, and in fact, I, I didn't have children when she came along. And it was the most amazing thing just watching her transformation. No, I played a part in that. And then it, it really started to pass for me wanting to wanting to branch out more into training. And I, that's what I did, is I, I started tuning up a few horses from here and there, you know, and I, I, I was never one to go out there and grab one and go, let's just start this one from the ground, uh, but I did a lot of tuning up, I did, you know, a lot of problem solving and stuff like that, and took on some more students, and some would, some would stay, some would go, you're always going to have kids, especially if you deal with youth in a training program, you're always going to have those that, their heart is really in it, and they're in love with everything about it. And then you're going to have those that they're there because their parents want them to do something. And they chose that. And some of those times are probably some of the most fun times I've ever had as a horseman. Is I had this group of kids. I had access to 350 acres of trails and creeks and all of that right across the road. Literally across the road from my place. And we could ride literally across the road and be in 350 acres of trails and creeks and open fields, and, and you name it, just beautiful sandy trails. I had my own little private, I call it my own little private Hitchcock, uh, because here in Aiken we have Hitchcock Woods, and that's where everybody goes and rides. Um, you know, it's nothing to go to Hitchcock, and the parking area just be full of trailers, be 50 trailers out there, you know, on, and one of the entrances. You know, you're, you're going to see horses. In fact, you'll probably see 30 or 40 horses on your way in. And I had my own little private Hitchcock, and it, it was amazing. And unfortunately, it got developed, and 
So I kind of I lost a lot of my my trail riding land that I would take kids out on on trail rides. And then, you know, I got older, priorities shifted. And I was working crazy hours and stuff. And it, it became harder for me to take on take on students and consistently uh, teach them to be to be not only, you know, good horsemen, uh, just but to be good kids. And, and that was the thing that I enjoyed most is that I get to connect with these kids and, and through the horse, you know, embrace a, a, a lot of life lessons. And though I know I'm not their parents, um, and I would never overstep that line of, you know, what their parents should be teaching them. It was still an opportunity for me to give them another point of view of something that maybe they hadn't heard before primarily around school and after school and, you know, um, choices that you're going to make right now, those type of things. Not, not, not the type of talks that, you know, you have with your parents. If you, if you painting what I'm priming, if you're picking up what I'm putting down, none of that, but just, you know, Hey, you know, have you, have you thought about, you know, I know you're going to college. Have you, if this is your, this is your passion, have you thought about maybe, looking into something in ag you know ag is a booming business around here and have a good career in in ag but those were some of the the most fun times i think i ever had as a horseman was was passing being able to pass on my knowledge that i'd acquired to the next generation of, of horse people and you know autumn even though i said i wouldn't say her name i'll just autumn's fine even though autumn um still is considered a jockey of a horse. Um, she didn't get to show as much as I, you know, she would probably like to, and as much as I would like her to. Um, she's a young woman now, and she's trying to find her her way in the world. And I get it, you know, you know, she's. I'm sure she will find her way back to the horse, like I found my way back to the horse. And now we're to this minute, right now. Pretty much. And I've left out a bunch of stuff. I'll be honest with you. This thing could be five hours long if I want it to be. And outside of the time when I had a good lesson program going and I had a string of four or five lesson ponies, I'm down to I have two horses that I am in love with. A mule that I wish somebody would just give a shot and it not be me. And my donkey, Leroy. And I am perfectly content with that right now. I have my horses. I've got Leroy and Kate the mule. I've got a couple of cows. I've got my daughters. And I'm happy with that. I've got a great podcast audience. And I've got my TikTok. And I'm finding a new way to connect with the horse. You know, I, I've got to do things now that I only dreamed about when I first started my career, you know, in the industry. And... You know, I got to go to road to the horse this year and, and, and stay up there the whole time, you know, and meet people that called themselves fans. I mean, it's, it's nuts. And and so even though a few years ago was probably the, the most fun time I had as a horseman, right now is probably the most fun time I'm having as a horse person. I'm learning more now than I, than I ever learned when I, I showed all the time, or when I was giving lessons all the time, or when I was training all the time. I'm learning more now uh, because I'm making myself learn it, because I want to pass that information on to to an audience. 
And I know there's probably a, a big contingent of people that don't like anything I have to put out. Um, and that's that's fine. And, and I know there's probably a, um, a large contingent that don't even know who I am. And I hope I can reach those people one day, you know. And then for everybody else, the almost 70,000 of you are, yeah, no, or is it? Or almost 60,000 of you, not 70,000, almost 60,000 of you on TikTok. You know, the thousands of you that have listened to this podcast. Uh, thank you. I don't know if social media or influencing or whatever you want to call it is going to be a career. It's a fun hobby. And I'm not getting rich. It's not even a good side hustle at all. Like, like, really, it's, it's, the money that I put into it, I am not getting out of it. I'll, I'll put it that way, by a long shot. But it sure is a lot of fun. And again, it's a way for me to connect, again, with the horse, in a different way. And other people with their horses. And hearing everybody else's stories, you know, about horses, and what led them to horses. And I always, every time I have a guest, that's one of the first things I bring up, you know, what is your, what is your story with the horse? They could be on for a completely different reason to talk about something really cool and really unique. But I always want to know, what is your story with horses? What, when did you connect with horses? How did you connect with horses? And I think that's why I'm always a big advocate of if you're out and you're riding and the general public walks up to you and goes, can I pet your horse? Let them pet the horse. Just let them pet it. Because you, you might, you, it, the spark is already there. And if we want to get the next generation of good horsemen, we got to turn that spark into a fire. And it started in us one way or the other. Even if you grew up around horses your whole life, there was one horse that just lit a fire in you and you knew you were going to be a horseman. Or even if you didn't and you were like me and you went a roundabout way into the industry, there was a horse that sparked something in you and lit a fire. And it... it it it, cre- it opened up an entire industry and created so much for you. Be a good ambassador for our industry. And it doesn't matter English, Western, sport, or pleasure. At the end of the day, though, there's sub-industries within the industry. We're all in the horse industries in some shape, fashion, or form. And we should all be a good ambassador And I could work on being a better ambassador. And I think we can all work on being a better ambassador. If we think we're a good ambassador, we could always be a great ambassador. If we're a great ambassador, we could always be an exceptional ambassador to our industry. And I think that's something we should all take personally. Because today, we have so many avenues with social media to get the positives out about our industry. Because a lot of people only see the negatives. If they're they're in passing, they only see the negative news articles about abuse or this, that, and the other. They never see the 99.9% of people who are just good horsemen. They're just in it because they love the animals. They see that 0.1% that are just garbage human beings. So that's a little bit of my story. And if you fell asleep, at least you got some ASMR out of it. Um, I don't know how anybody could ever fall asleep to my voice. I can't stand my voice. But at least now, I hope maybe some people have a better understanding of me and where I come from. And as a horseman, I went the most backwards way possible to get into the industry, but it worked. And I would not trade 
any of it for the world. I wish so many times that I had gotten a horse when I was younger, but it would have changed so much about me as I got older and what I got to experience. And it would have led me into a completely different direction. So part of me is glad my dad said no so many times. I, I really am. Because it, my outcome would have been different. It could have been a whole lot better. It could have been a whole lot worse too. But I don't know. But what I do know is I have had a hell of a time in this industry. And at 39 now, I hope to have another you know, 30 years or so in the saddle before I get to hang up my spurs. So, anyway, thank you guys for listening to another episode of Behind the Horse's Eyes. I am always Ryan Chastain. You can find me on TikTok at jryanchastain. Um, if you're into audiobooks, check out Audible, audible.com, uh, excuse me, audibletrial.com forward slash jryan. Get a free audiobook on me when you sign up for a 30-day free trial. And guess what? If you decide it's not for you, you can cancel anytime. You get to keep your audiobook. Um, some awesome horse books on there. Pretty, I mean, hundreds of thousands of books. Whatever you can think of, it's there. Also, thank you to Anchor.fm, uh, the host of our podcast, Anchor by FM. Anchor FM by Spotify, amazing. Anybody can make a podcast. If you've got a smartphone, laptop, tablet, doesn't matter. If you've got something that's got a microphone and access to the internet, you don't need a studio like me. Your smartphone can be your podcast-making machine. Head on over to anchor.fm today. they got everything you need to edit right there. So, again, thank you guys so much for, for joining me for this episode. It's a little bit different, ran a little bit long. No guests, just me rambling on. And uh, I'll catch you guys next time. <laughs>